Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me. You know, it is really bizarre to be learning something in public. I'm learning how to do introductions to podcasts. I'm learning how to carry on conversations. I'm learning how to listen better. I'm learning how to get used to listening to my own voice, which is fucking weird. You know, I am... I recently watched Ted Lasso on Apple TV, and it was such a good show. It was so uplifting. And there's this scene where he talks about curiosity, and he talks about how people had doubted him his whole life. And when he took a minute to look at those people that had been doubting him, he realized that they were not curious. And I think that curiosity is such a integral part of being an interesting person really using this experience we have to live our lives. And, you know, I'm here at 43 years old now, and I am so drastically different than the person that I was when I was 20, and different from the person that I was when I was 30. I'm different from the person that I was not that long ago. It has taken me a lot of effort to be this person that I am now that's sitting here in front of a microphone and sharing myself with strangers to be judged and uh, talked about. But there's something in that transparency. There's something in the fact that I know that my desire is true, that I just, I want to talk about the things that I'm learning. I want to talk about the things that I've had to learn along the way because I think that there are useful things. We are given these kind of maps to navigate our lives with. Depending on the person that gave us that map, our map might be kind of fucked up, or we might have a map that's only suitable for Detroit, but we're trying to get around Chicago. And that helps us become more aware and more present, able to live a conscious life. What does it mean to be a decent person? What does it mean to want to contribute. How do we contribute? So much of my life I thought that because I was an artist that I was destined to be fucked up. That to make good art, I needed to be fucked up. That I needed to be depressed. That I needed to be distraught and turbulent. But I don't fucking believe that at all anymore. I like not being tossed about by the waves. I like being present and direct. And uh, I know that I'm not alone in these situations. So I hope that in these conversations that I have, you are able to pick up some of the things that that I've learned along the way that I really needed. But it took me a a very long time to find them out. And now, thankfully to technology, we get to share these things and get to talk to one another. Um, Today, I'm going to share an interview with Hannah Sandstrom, who is an old friend of mine. We used to work together at Idle Hand for a very short while. Actually, we've only worked together on guest spots. But we've been in the same circles and know the same people, and uh, she's a real sweetheart. And almost two years ago, she found out that she has stage four cervical cancer, and she is in the midst of fighting that. And God damn, is she doing it with so much grace. And thoughtfulness. You know, just the fact that she has cancer isn't interesting. There's plenty of people out there that have cancer. I don't know what good it would do to sit and talk with them. But to be able to sit with somebody 
and listen to them as they stare destiny and fate and loss in the face, where they look into the darkness that we all come from. The fact that she is so present and aware and in touch with the cycle of life that she's dealing with this because she has no other choice. I'm 43 now, and those things start to become a reality. I went to the doctor the other day, and you know, every time you go, the older you get, it's like, oh, something could happen. My buddy Martin had an aneurysm. Hannah's had this happen. Cancer. She's fighting fucking cancer. She, just recently, she shared that she's down to 107 pounds, and she is, uh... She's not small enough to be 107 pounds, and she's still fighting. She's still... She won't give up. I don't know that I could do it for as long as she's done it. I didn't know that stage four cancer is the last stage of cancer, and she continues to defy the odds. So it's a heavy podcast. It's the the beginning, she shares with us, uh, you know, what it was like to find out that she had it, and I mean, she is processing an entire life at forty-one years old. So. Uh, I really didn't need to ask her many questions, uh, and she is so in touch with herself that she had a lot to share. So at the beginning of the conversation, she's just kind of laying it all out. About halfway through, we start to really explore different things, and I learned a lot from her, and I'm so inspired by her. And she is uh, living in Sweden now, and she's not allowed to work. So I know that any support to her would be greatly appreciated. And you could find her on Instagram at Little Tuesday Surf Club. And there should be a link there to be able to donate to help support her. You'll hear about how the tattoo community in part, but just so many people that she's met along the way turned out to support her in a way that was awe-inspiring. It was uh, really incredible to see how cared for she was by people that she might not have even known. So yeah, you can go there and look to donate. And also, I recently switched over to a hosting company called Anchor. And if you look up on the web, searching with JTG, that should come up. And you could go there and donate if you wanted to put some money towards a podcast. That would be much appreciated trying to do it all. Hopefully one day I'll be able to get somebody to help with the editing and maybe put videos up on YouTube. So all of that would help the podcast become better. And I thank all of you for coming to spend the time with me and with Hannah. Get ready for a very blunt conversation about life and death and disease and uh, a bit of tattooing and art and meditation and Buddhism. And she is a very curious person, which is probably one of the reasons that she is still kicking ass as hard as she is. So with love, thank you, Hannah, for doing this with us. And I hope that everybody enjoys. Because um, a lot of people think I moved back to get better health care. And that's not, I, I was really lucky. I had already been approved for Medicaid because Jamie and I had been trying to get pregnant forever and we did get pregnant. Unfortunately, uh, we lost it, but it was only 
that was like March of 2019, I think. Wait, May of 2019. So I was approved for Medicaid because I've, I've been pregnant and or was pregnant at the time. And then in August of 2019, I was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, the, the insurance was still working. And I will say in my case, because I think because my diagnosis was so serious and at this point it was not a pre-existing condition, you know, I hadn't, I don't even know how that is working these days in the States, but um, so I actually was approved, like, and I had really, I lucked out and got really amazing doctors that made sure that whatever procedures they were doing, they would finagle it so that my insurance, so it would be procedures that would be covered by my insurance. So I didn't get slammed too bad compared to how a lot of people get slammed in the States, but it was, I was moved, I moved back more to be with my family and to get back home. You know, I actually had a really amazing doctor in Seattle, Dr. Shrogshaw. He was at, I was ironically at Swedish Cancer Institute, which confused a lot of people when I first got diagnosed. They're like, so are you back in Sweden? I'm like, no, I'm still in Seattle. The, the center is called Swedish Cancer Institute. They were really incredible from day one and on and helped me get over here and get me in with the doctors here in Sweden so that... Um, but I honestly think it's 100% luck because I happen to be in a part of the country that has, like Seattle has some really good cancer centers and they have a lot of programs for people, you know, across the board who may not have great insurance from, you know, from jobs or whatever, if they have, <laughs> can afford to pay for it, you know. It was, it was pure luck. I mean, had I lived in a different part of the States, this would not have been the story. I would not have gotten the kind of care I got. So that was, you know, some things, someone's watching you in the middle of all the shit. Something is pushing you, like giving you a little bit of a reprieve in, in this whirlwind, you know? Yeah. What do you think that something might be? Oh, that's the big question, isn't it? It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean... I'm an old punk. So growing up, I was like hardcore atheist. Um, and right around the time that I met my now ex-husband, Rick, he's sober since 27 years now, it must be. Um, so I stopped drinking when we met because I was just a punk partying too much, you know, doing all that shit that you do when you're kid and angry at the world you know so with that I, I went into AA for a bit but I realized I don't have I'm not an alcoholic but we're all seekers you know some more than others and I stumbled on to Shambhala Buddhism through a friend who brought me to a meditation meeting so I was this must have been like 2000 2001 something like that and I'd never meditated before in my life. And um, we got there right as it was starting. So I didn't have time to ask for instructions. So for 30 minutes with my kind of brain. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it was the worst 30 minutes of my entire life. <laughs> I, <laughs> I sat there and it was just complete narcissism at its worst. 
everybody's watching me. Everybody in here knows that I don't belong here. What the fuck am I doing here? And, but, you know, just full on panic. And then I was like, okay, just get through these 30 minutes. Uh, and then you can just get the fuck out of here. And, you know, they hit the little gong and the teacher that I now know is Frank. He, no one's getting up. And I'm like, why the fuck isn't anybody getting up? They're just sitting here. Like, can I leave? And uh, and he goes, so for today's Dharma talk, we're going to talk about the racing mind. And I was like, point taken. <laughs> I guess I'll stay. So where was uh, this? In Boston. Okay. So at the time, must have been around that. Oh, I was working at an art supply store, Old Pearl at Arts and Crafts that doesn't exist anymore. But hey, Pearlies, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was a fun, brief time in my life. But uh, it's also how I met the person who brought me to the Shambhala Center, and uh, I went there pretty intensely for a few years, and uh, it was incredibly helpful for a, a young restless soul to get it was more I put more focus onto the meditation part than I did the dharma um I can't say that I necessarily studied buddhism and also shambhala has taken a kind of a weird turn over the years into a more so but it's, it, it just it started going further away from buddhism and more into its own thing that I personally didn't feel comfortable with I wasn't enjoying meetings anymore or the the meditation meetings and stuff when I would visit centers around the country it just changed so much that um but it was perfect for that time in my life and that's when you start to ask yourself like is this just pure coincidence or is someone something uh nudging you in a certain way and I would say at this point in my life I do believe in a higher power um, but I'm not raised with, my family are secular. I definitely won't say atheist. They're not that strong about it. And they, you know, both my parents, you know, they're, they're open-minded to things, but none of us were raised Christian, you know, like, um, both my parents, neither my parents nor, nor me and my, and my brothers. So um you know that wasn't a for some people they have this fallback you know if I shouldn't call it a fallback necessarily but it's you know what we're comfortable with where we come from you know I, I didn't have a spiritual background at all like non-existing so it was all what I want you know what made sense to me and that can be really difficult you know having like where where do you start what do you lean into you know what feels right to you is there nothing like is what's right you know and um so in that sense i i do feel fortunate to have been brought to shambhala um i won't say necessarily that i'm a buddhist but i definitely have later on in my life studied buddhism a lot and uh, dealing with what i'm dealing with now I'm so incredibly grateful for the time that I spent with that and especially meditation. Like I can't say that I'm, I'm practicing it hardly at all right now, but um, 
and I always say I should, but you know, with meditation and mindfulness, like if you're doing it because you should, like it's not this chore to check off your daily list. It's it's you know more of a state of being. But when you've done it for a long time, it becomes part of your everyday existence. Yeah. You know, you apply it to everything, especially when you have this very busy mind. It's just to like draw your attention back. And that's incredibly important in my current situation because I don't know how long I'm going to live. You know, I, I was told in beginning of June that I was dying and that the treatments weren't working and that I had about six months left. And That's June of this year, of this, uh, well, or last year of 2020, yeah. uh, this past June. And my doctor only spoke, people have been like, That's fucked up. I can't believe he said that. And I was like, Well, I asked. Like, my doctor again has been incredible. And we've had a very open, like, we, we have a very similar mindset. You know, he's very much like a medical doctor, you know, but he has a more holistic approach mentally to it, you know, and uh, spiritually. So he's very open to a lot of things. And, and also just I'm a pragmatic, too. So it's like I'd rather deal with things head on and like tell me what I'm dealing with and then I can adjust to it. Like, don't sugarcoat it. Don't, you know, so um he's always like when I ask him something he he'll tell me the truth and um I've always felt part of the conversation and not just like a patient that's being rushed through so at the time I was doing really bad I mean I was the level of fatigue I was having can't be explained like I was again I'm a very high energy person I was in bed 20 22 hours a day sleeping almost that entire time like it was, I was so tired that I would fall over walking to the bathroom. Like it could barely, and it was like, I could feel myself dying. Like I was like, I'm, if this keeps going, I'm going to die. And like, I never knew, you know, like oh, I feel like dying, but like I, I was dying for sure. And so I asked him, I was like, am I dying? And, uh, and he said, I think you are. And like, he, he was even choking up and like, and we left and we got home and Jamie looks at me, he's like, you're the only person I know who's in a better mood after being told you have six months left to live. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's now I have something because I knew it. I knew it already. Like I could feel it. So it was almost more like having it confirmed and him being straightforward with me. And I was like, okay, well, that's not my truth. That's not how this is going to go. I'm not going to be dead in six months. So I started pushing. Like I was, I've been pushing for, fuck. I mean, definitely this last year and a half, like every day I have to choose to stay alive. You know, like if I quit, if I decided that I didn't want to do this anymore, it, I wouldn't live for very long. It would be not days but like weeks or months and that would be it like I never realized like cancer doesn't just attack your body attacks your mind like and even my doctor said that day one the day he gave me my diagnosis 
he said, now you, you have to fight. He goes, this is a fight for your life. And he said, the mindset of the patient is just as important as the treatments they do. If the patient has decided that they're done, it doesn't really matter what they do. Like they won't make it. But then they have also seen people who no one thought would live a certain amount of time. And because they, you know, and there's also another part to this, which you can call toxic positivity. It's this, if you just had keep a positive attitude, you won't be sick or you will heal. That's good people die every day. People who have the best mindsets die every day. It's more about like, is this really it? Is, are you, you know, and that includes saying, you know, today I'm not gonna do anything, you know, and that because that's what feels right today. But it's like, you have to be so honest with yourself every day to a degree that I've never thought possible. And every single day, and it can be as simple as like, you know, asking yourself what the day will look like. And if I'm doing very poorly, then the absolute best scenario for me that day may be just staying on the couch with my dogs and sleeping. And then, but it's not because I'm, it's all about intention, why I'm doing it, why I'm choosing. So it's, it's all about choosing joy and that's just life in general, but definitely try to stay away from this like Instagram toxic positivity of like, you know, like, you know, like diets and stuff that's really important. But then for example, with cancer, you get so sick from your treatments too. Cause I've had people tell me like that I shouldn't do chemotherapy, that I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. And like, until you're in, those shoes you know like I'm someone who's always like I, I try to eat really healthy I try like I avoid you know artificial food I eat organic I try you know like I'm all about like toxic household products like you know but so the thought of pouring chemo chemo drugs into your body was just like what the fuck but I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't done chemotherapy, or if I'm still, I mean, I'm there every week, I'm going tomorrow. So there's that, like finding the healthy balance between, you know, like you can't be on every day. You can't be this like ultra positive, go, go, go every day with it for anybody, whether you have cancer or not, you know, like that destroys you too. It creates completely unrealistic expectations and makes you miserable you know so it's like what brings you joy and if I for example from my treatments can't eat anything because I feel so sick if I can eat a damn ice cream cone then eat a fucking ice cream cone and don't beat yourself up over it having gluten or sugar or dairy in it you know like if you're withering away and you're not being able to keep weight on then maybe that super strict diet you're doing isn't actually helping you mm-hmm. you know like then we're starting to go into like orthorexia yeah. level so it's it's hard and I have to like ride all these different levels because it's it's definitely challenging a lot of my my beliefs you know 
Um, it must have been, I mean, I can, the only comparison I could even imagine would be yeah. me going through depression sure. and people telling me, oh, you just need to do this. And yeah. people that haven't experienced it, I can't imagine how frustrating it must be on your sure. end to have people telling you, oh, you should just drink celery juice or, you know, and I, it, I, I would imagine it would make you furious after a while. Like you have no idea what the fuck I'm going through. Yeah. And what I'm already doing to take care of myself. Oh, totally. I mean, depression is a perfectly good comparison, actually. Um, you know, like people, I'm not someone who, I'm not depressive by nature. I'm really lucky that I don't have, I'm not anxious by nature. Like that's, Jesus, if you were, I don't <laughs> think you would have the resilience and the the. I mean, that Jamie. For those who don't know, I'm married to a tattooer, Jamie King, wonderful guy. <laughs> uh, but he he's like, man, if the tables were turned, he's like, I I wouldn't be here right now, and I hate to say that, but I'm I am tremendously lucky in my natural mindset that I am someone who's naturally positive and naturally positive pragmatic like I like like lay shit out for me I'm not sensitive so like give me the shit like I'm not gonna like and then then I can base things off of that but I can always find like okay now how can we find the best solution or best angle or you know but um there's a lot of like so I was diagnosed in let me see. Yeah. Beginning of July. No, end of July. Uh, beginning of August uh, 2019. Because it was just before Pagoda City Convention. Jamie and I were just getting ready to go. And where I did some blood work and scans and we're like, so can we go on this trip? And they're like, absolutely not. Because I didn't know yet. And the doctors were like, absolutely not. And we're like, okay. I guess and you I'm had not. just been Sorry. feeling sick and run down. So I guess I should use this opportunity to highlight ovarian cancer in particular, because I knew nothing about it, nothing. And that in its own is bullshit. Every woman should know about, because we all talk about like breast cancer and it, we should, you know, not saying we shouldn't, like we absolutely should and self exams. Um, there is no self-exam, unfortunately, with ovarian cancer. There is no tests. There are no scans they can do. Like your pap smear will not show you if you have ovarian cancer. Um, you have to, and the symptoms are super vague in general, like generic, like um, bloating, stomach, like, you know, like some abdominal pain of varying degrees. Uh, fatigue, um, loss of appetite for some people, like, you know, all this, not everything applies to everybody, like frequent urination that didn't happen to me. Um, I'm not, a, I mean, I love to eat, but I'm also like, my brother is, my brother's the same way we say we're lizards. We can, like, if we get into something, we could go like two days without eating because we're so into what we're doing and then eat. A ton of food so it's like me not having a huge appetite at times is not a strange thing so I won't even really think about it and uh, because then I'll eat a ton but 
I guess, you know, so it's all these very generic um, symptoms. But in my case, I kind of felt something was up years ago when I figured out that I have endometriosis, which is super common. It's like, I mean, I guess it's like three in 10 women have it. I didn't know about this either. Again, I had to advocate, like self-advocate and ask my OBGYN, like, could this be what's going on with me? Because I was having, you know, various issues that again were very subtle. And um, the only way you can diagnose endometriosis is through uh, surgery, which is also crazy. So you, like, you're not gonna do that unless you really have to. Uh, you have to do, a, a, let me see if I can pronounce this word, lapar, ah, shit. Uh, like a camera surgery. I'm not even going to try oh, to say laparoscopic. Is that a- yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's not something I'm going to do unless it's absolutely necessary. And especially in the States where I may have to end up paying like my deductible, like I'm not going to pay $1,500 or $5,000, whatever my deductible is to find out whether I have this thing or not, because it's not really changing my situation much. So they did ultrasounds and they said I had ovarian cysts, which they said were really common. And I was tested for cervical cancer, which you can do with a biopsy of your, like your, your cervix, they can take a tissue. It's, um, so that was done. So I was like, oh, cool. I'm in the clear for cancer. No one mentioned ovarian cancer once with all these symptoms that I had that were identical to ovarian cancer. No one mentioned that this could be a potential, and especially me having cysts. They don't know that there's cysts or tumors. They just see on the ultrasound that there's growths. So I'm pissed that no one brought up. They were like, well, we may want to look into further what this may be. But then we kept talking about endo and cysts, which was so common. And then we've been having difficulty trying to get pregnant for years. So that's the main reason why I started looking into this further, even to the degree of going to see an IVF doctor in Sweden. And all she told me was I had too much endo tissue to do an egg retrieval. She didn't tell me like, dude, you got huge masses in your abdomen. You may want to talk to someone about this. Like, again, I had to self-advocate. So I made an appointment. I actually had a really wonderful general physician in Seattle. And so if I asked her, like, if I need a referral, she'd get on it immediately. So I wanted to see an endo specialist and she got me in to see someone, but I still had to wait three months. So this was after the miscarriage. So it was May of 19. Um, And then through the summer from May until August, when I was diagnosed, like I, my symptoms quickly got worse, like way worse. Like I started having like severe stomach pain and I even started having difficulty breathing. Um, and it would, I was like, it sounded like I was, it felt like I was breathing glass, broken glass. And like, it was like, I could feel that I had fluid in my chest. So again, I was like reading up about this and I think I have diaphragmatic endo, like and endometriosis is ovarian, uh, um, 
uterine tissue that grows outside of the uterus that grows like all over the inside of your body cavity. So it can grow anywhere. So, you know, the symptoms would align with that tissue being up here. Uh, But when they finally three months later got me in to see this endo specialist, she was concerned about the, that there was, she did, you know, they did an ultrasound, a chest x-ray and they saw that there was fluid um, in the pleura, like the lining of my lungs. And that worried her and she immediately referred me to, um, to an oncologist, which cancer wasn't even, it was nowhere on my radar. I thought I was going in to talk about endometriosis, which in itself is completely harmless. And, you know, a few hours later, I'm on the phone talking to her about cancer. And I'm just like, I feel like a huge question mark. You know, I'm like, where the fuck? I mean, we all worry about cancer all the time, but I'm someone who's like, I've always been really healthy. I never really get sick. I always have really high energy. I'm always like, always like, you know, like trained a lot for a while. Like I've always been pretty fit and like, just like everything's working well. And then suddenly it was just like, at this point, it was like, I was having pain in my chest where it was bruising from the inside out. And I could see through the tattoos that there was shit going on on the inside. And by the time they could do a thoracentesis, it's when they drain the fluid, there was a liter and a half of fluid in the lining of my lungs. So that's two bottles of wine worth of fluid. And they did a biopsy on, on that. And, you know, so a week after I saw the doctor, I was in the office with the with an oncologist and was told that my entire abdomen was filled with cancer, like completely riddled with it. So from my, so stage four, for those who don't know, because I didn't know shit about cancer before. There's no cancer in my family. Well, my grandfather, but it was smoking related, 100%. So there's no, and I've done the genetic testing. So it's not, it's not hereditary. because ovarian cancer is also for women who have risk of breast cancer in their family. Ovarian cancer is usually, they can, a lot of women who deal with breast cancer also have to have hysterectomies just to ensure that it doesn't, uh, they don't have a recurrence in their, uh, ovarian, you know, in their ovaries, because they, um, even though those are two separate cancers. So, um, I lost track of what I was saying, but yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, no, no cancer in my family, no nothing, but I had always been told that when I would ask about the endo, the endometriosis, like, cause to me that sounded like tissue growing wherever I'm like, that sounds like tumors. Like, can that be cancer? And they're like, oh no, there's no correlation between endometriosis and cancer. And then now my oncologist who is one of the top gynecological oncologists in the country told me like my endo eventually moved on to ovarian cancer. So it was complete bullshit that my endometriosis could not 
cause cancer. So in my case, it's a pure mutation. Bad fucking luck. So yeah, so stage four, because some people have said, well, at least it's just stage four, (laughs) which I laugh now uh, darkly because for someone who's, I mean, it's sadly not a one through 10 chart. It's a one through four chart. So it's stage four is last stage cancer. So it means that the cancer has spread from the original site to, you know, further parts of the body. So in my case, I actually don't have, well, I don't have ovaries anymore. I've had to do a full hysterectomy. I have nothing, no reproductive organs left. Um, But they fortunately were able to fully remove the original cancer, but it's all on the outside of my lungs and on my liver and they can't get at it because it's microscopic little nodules. And it's why we keep doing cancer uh, chemo because they're trying to shrink it back. But it's I I uh, I managed to pick a really well all cancer shitty, but a really aggressive, really rare form that um, you know even within ovarian cancer, the type that I have, it's about between three and five percent of ovarian cancer get my type of ovarian cancer. And so the odds of me living to five years, living five years is very low and past that is almost zero. But I'm also a firm believer in like that we are not statistics, you know, in order to get there, someone has to be way past that. And someone sadly will be closer, but I've already proven that that's not the case, you know, yeah. like I already turned things around since June. Um, I mean, I've been doing a little bit worse lately, but I have, I'm, <laughs> I'm suspecting I might have had COVID to be honest. I'm going to take an antibody test to find out because uh, that would actually explain my doctor kept saying it was just symptoms from my uh, treatments, but um, it would actually be strangely awesome if I had it and got rid of it. I mean, had it, done and if me feeling shittier lately is not due to the cancer but due to something completely different so um but yeah no I decided that I didn't want to die in June I wasn't going to be dead before Christmas and you know you do these little things like I'm so tired but you know so you can't go like exercise if you can't even walk to the bathroom so it would be like I'm going to go walk around the living room table. Like I can do one more lap around the table and then I can allow myself to go lay down again. And the next day you do a couple extra laps and then force yourself to eat and just. And it made me think uh, how fast something can change. Like one, just one second of, yeah. Your life is this, and then you find something out, and your life is something completely yeah. and totally different. And then completely. you have no choice except to accept it and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. Yeah, or not. And but but the option is it's like you can't just say, I don't want to do this, and then go back to your normal life. I mean, the amount of times I've wished that was possible, you know, I can't even count, but Uh, And there's still days 
where it feels completely surreal that it, this is my this is my life now. Um, because so you're how old? Uh, I'm 41 now. I was 39 when I best was diagnosed. And it's not even on your radar that something like this no, could happen. No, I mean, and... ovarian cancer, the average age for diagnosis, I think is 65, 61, you know? So it's like, technically I shouldn't have it. But then again, if you look at those statistics, like statistically I shouldn't have it. So then the other statistics don't matter either. You know, <laughs> like if I beat those statistics, maybe I can beat the ones on the other end too. Yeah. You know? I don't think there's a direct correlation between this, but when you said the, uh, Shut up, you know, I'm that trying. <laughs> we're, they were not statistics and just because somebody else hasn't done it, done it yeah. doesn't mean that you can't do it. It made me think of the four minute mile. Like, uh, when somebody broke that record, nobody had ever broken like the yeah. four minute mile. And then one person did it. And then not yeah. that long after somebody, yeah. uh, broke that. Yeah. Whereas there, I'm I'm so impressed by your by your mindset <laughs> and your ability to stay positive and to keep yeah. uh, fighting, man. Yeah. Because with that four minute mile, there's the ability that we have control over that through yeah. through our will, we can make something happen. Yeah. And I think you're bringing that mindset into your battle against this unseen and yeah. uncontrollable thing but the power of the mind is really something special it's, I mean it's it's incredible it's unbelievably important I mean it's absolutely as much as I you know I say like you know if I if I need to eat ice cream I will and like yeah sure but it's for example the diets and stuff that people talk about I I'm lucky to have an incredible therapist that I was seeing for off and on for a few years before this happened. And after I was diagnosed, I found out that she is also a cancer fighter. I mean, she doesn't, she's currently in what's called NED, like no evidence of disease, but she has been told twice that she had six months left to live and has beat it. So I couldn't, again, is this when we say, is this coincidence that I ended up with a therapist for completely different reasons who it then turns out, like now when I was packing up my house, I found her business card and I never real I realized I never looked at it that closely. And it says that she specializes in serious illness as her number one thing. And that's, I never looked at it because that wasn't on my radar, you know? Um, so, um, but I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have her to bounce things off of because she's not just someone who has read about it and then tells me how I should deal with it but she lives with it herself you know yeah but um is there yeah but yeah go are ahead there, are there things that seemed really important to you before that don't seem as important now oh yeah I mean geez so many things I mean uh our self-importance <laughs> uh you know, and like the value of life. And when I say that, it's not just measuring. I mean, cause now suddenly I can't measure life and time anymore because the likelihood of me living till I'm like 80, 70, 80 is not super high. 
at all. <laughs> the likelihood of me living until I'm 50 is not super high. So suddenly I had to look at the value of life in a completely different way. You know, this idea of like linear time um, that we are so obsessed with. It's this like point A to point B, point A, you know, like this like task, 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 and like su success being measured in, in what other people see and, um, you know, like what is valuable. It completely changes, you know, like time is malleable, you know, like when we say we don't have time for something, it's just how we approach things, you know, like the amount of time like my days with my family, for example, are, you know, four times longer than they were before. Because I'm, again, like talking about meditation, learning to stay present, like staying present in the moment. Like those are the things that are worth everything. Like self-awareness, you know, like, you know, our, our, what I was saying earlier, like our, what should I say? Like, but like our self-importance that goes out the window, but you know, um, self-awareness is like through the roof, you know, like really paying attention, like mindfulness and like intention is more important than ever before. It's like, what is valuable? What is, and that's going to be completely individual. You know, that's going to change to every, so I can't say what that is because what's important to me isn't necessarily important to someone else, you know? So I'm not going to say like, oh, here's a list of the most important things. And if you do this, you'll get the most out of life because that's kind of the whole thing that we already struggle with as a society is this the FOMO, <laughs> the fear of missing out, which I am guilty of big time, you know? Um, of always like next thing, next thing, next thing. And like, you know, you're an adventurer and a traveler too, you know, like, and I am so grateful that I have done so much and lived so many places and traveled a lot. But then what I'm discovering now is that I constantly live with a feeling of what I haven't done yet, instead of enjoying what I have done or where I have been. It's just like, but I haven't gone, like my first thought when I found out that I was dying or sick was, but I haven't, but I haven't, but I haven't. And like, I still, you know, being the type of person I am, I live for adventure. I live for the next thing. But suddenly I learned to slow things down. Like I move way too fast for what's healthy. You know, like I'm... I'm a very restless person. So this has had to like, and not anxious, but restless, you know, always like, okay, keep going, keep going, keep going. And it's like, I've gotten to have some really, spend some really beautiful time thinking about the things that I've done. And that's like, I haven't even thought about, you know, this person or this place or like my dad, my dad and I are super tight. And we spend a lot of time talking. And he has been asking me a lot about different times in my life. And it's really beautiful because I realize he's 
while I'm here, he wants to hear my story. He wants to get to know me. He wants to fill in the blanks where he doesn't know exactly, you know, where were you then? And where, where were you living then? And who were, you know, like, it's really cool. Uh, here's my squirrel brain jumping all around again, but. <laughs> That's beautiful. But, um, what's that? That's really beautiful. Yeah, I'm really lucky with, I'm really lucky with him and my family in general. That's another, like we talk about like what becomes important, you know, I dealt a lot with grief in the beginning, a lot of grief, of primarily like the, the grief of loss of me, the person I was before, because you will, like and for the longest time, you're thinking about getting back to that person, but that's gone. You know, what do they say in, in Buddhism? The only thing that's permanent is change. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one I've always carried with me is like just letting go is so important. And like attachment is one of our biggest joy thieves, you know. Um, and that doesn't mean I'm good at it, just the awareness, like again, like yeah. awareness is if we can stay aware of what we're doing, that's half the battle. For so many years we just live in complete ignorance and wondering why things aren't the way we want them to so getting to that awareness I mean having this time to think about things because I'm not able to physically do as much as I want like I had all these thoughts I was like when I first got diagnosed like oh I won't be able to work but I'm going to do all these big paintings and I've always wanted to do children's books and I'm going to and like at times I'm able to do that but most of the time I'm too tired I didn't know what cancer actually looked like in day-to-day life what it felt like I didn't realize there was a lot of pain involved. Like it's just general body pain. Like I'm on some pretty heavy doses of oxy oxys daily to just get through my days. You build up so you don't ever feel intoxicated because the last thing I want in my life is to be intoxicated. Like I want to full awareness, fully experience this while I'm here. You know, like I don't want to miss a single moment with my nieces or that stuff. It's like I have patience that I never used to have. Like, for example, I, I never had kids, but my brothers both have kids that I'm really close with. And I'm really close with my brothers. I have a younger and an older brother. And my younger brother has um, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old that I'm very close with. And in the past, little kids are exhausting. Anyone who <laughs> asks them, who's around them, you know, knows they're exhausting. But when you're not used to it, I'm sure even if you are used to it, they can get annoying. The level of patience that I have with those kids is like something gave me that, you know, that was like flipping a switch. They can be just who they are around me. And I don't like them screaming and like it doesn't make me angry anymore. It doesn't annoy me anymore. I wonder if some of that is like you, you are constantly staring uh death in the face you're you're staring at the end of your conscious existence and then maybe being around those kids you're seeing new life and you're seeing the cycle and in ways that a lot of people never will absolutely i guess in ways that everybody does uh and we don't know when but you you have this kind of process of pacing all of it and staring at it well, it's kind of like speeding up 
I'm, I'm looking at it way sooner than I had ever thought I would yeah. be looking at it. I'm like, I'm 42 now. And yeah, I'd start to think a lot more. I'm probably more than halfway through my life. You know, yeah. I don't know. None of us know when that's coming. Yeah. But that, process of getting older and thinking holy shit i there's so many things that i still want to do that i that i have put off and i i really want to feel the feeling of following through so that i i i wonder what it, what it's like to know that that time is is shorter and yeah. you know i mean greg irons that are yeah. a tattoo oh, yeah. hero yeah. who's in thailand yeah. he sends a postcard and steps out on the street and gets hit by and a bus and it's over yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it must be so interesting and challenging and enlightening to sit there and look at it and watch it in the way that yeah. you're doing. There was I I was in Costa Rica in my kitchen the yeah. the morning that I saw the fundraiser for you on I mm. guess it was through GoFundMe and yeah. Julie and I were there and we both were crying just looking mm. at the amount of people that came mm. out to support you. Mm. And I can't imagine mm. how that must have felt for you. Can you share that? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that's another reason why I'm happy to do these types of interviews because there's no way that I can ever express the gratitude I have for this community. I mean, it's, I always said, like, until this happened, tattooing. I looked at it, you know, it's, 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 we have a community and tattooing, but it was a job. That's when I realized it's not just a job. How humbled I've felt seeing thousands of people donating. I mean, it was from every possible walk of life. I mean, I had like one of my childhood daycare teachers donate. I mean, it's, it's crazy to see that and to see our community pull together the way it did, because I have zero income as it is. Like I'm in this catch 22 in Sweden where, you know, they have a good system where you can get sick pay, but in order to do that, you must have lived here for at least six months and worked and paid taxes, which I hadn't because I went here, you know, after I was diagnosed. So I can't get sick pay. And then the other option is something called it's like basically like sick retirement it's like early retirement due to serious illness but then I'm not allowed to do any kind of work like I wouldn't be able to work on paintings and sell paintings I would you know I have to basically prove that I can't ever work again in my life and I don't want that I mean I want to come back to tattooing to whatever what that will look like I have no idea and I'm not going to worry about that right now but I have every intention of of you know getting to a place where my cancer will probably never go away but where it can be pushed back enough into remission that I can have it stable and where I can return to tattooing so um without everyone's help I I don't know what I would do I would be completely fucked you know it's like I had my you know I had savings but when you're when you have zero ink like zero money coming in that goes away real fast like little things like even if you're like tightening things up and you know it doesn't matter like and what it costs to be sick and to be you know I still had to pay for for medication I still had to pay for you know groceries and and 
plane tickets and packing up my shit and like I'm trying to sell off stuff to make money and you know and people have been incredible with that too it's but there has been a lot of good tears cried over seeing this like I could never in a million years have pictured that level of support um and now you know a year and a half later we are looking at it because we're we've applied for Jamie to be able to move to Sweden hopefully you know knock on wood but um Swedish immigration is tricky uh, and we're in the middle of a pandemic which makes it really hard to travel so he his application is in but basically because I don't have an income I am his sponsor I guess I'm the person he's moving to so I have to be able to prove that I can support the two of us and because I don't have an income they look at you know your your assets so that's you know whatever I had so what was left of the original fundraiser was not quite enough uh, it was just barely there but the problem is I can't touch that money because at any moment immigration can want to see do you have that money and if I am using it you know it's going to keep dwindling so I was in this and I you know it's asking for help and especially asking for money is Ooh, it's brutal, brutal. It's as hard as dealing with the cancer in itself. Is I'm not someone who asks for help, you know? I'm, I consider myself a strong person who have always taken care of myself. And to be in a position where I can't make my own money, where I can't make enough money to take care of myself anymore is, unbelievably difficult so um i have a cell phone that i'm going to chuck across the room because it's ringing right now but <laughs> uh, speaking of um no so i had to ask for help again and that was took a lot of contemplating to do because i just especially because i'd already done a fundraiser and i felt like you've already gotten more than you deserve people have done more for you than you could ever have imagined and you're going to ask for more but then I was like what do I do I'm in this situation where I can't use the money that I have because I have to use that to show you know so that my husband can be with me while I'm dealing with terminal cancer and while he's stuck in the U.S. and I'm in Sweden and is there a specific amount that you need to be able to get that yeah so that he can yeah so it's, so it's basically they do a quick math formula of it's your rent and utilities plus what they consider to be a certain amount of money needed to live for two people for two years so it ends up being a hefty amount of money <laughs> like yeah it's not a, a lot scandinavian no, fucking expensive. no and Fortunately, rent is hell of a lot cheaper than, well, I've been living in Seattle and San Francisco, which is ridiculous. Preposterous. <laughs> yeah. So uh, fortunately, the rent's not too bad, but, you know, and then not being able to touch that money. So, you know, I, we did a second fundraiser and I didn't, I was like, if we can get a few thousand dollars, 
that will help us at least just get through the next few months and I can figure out what I can do after that. And we raised as much as we did the first time. I'm absolutely just blown. I still am blown away. It's so Yeah, amazing. I mean, I can't, I can't express enough my gratitude for, for the tattoo community and everyone who is associated with it, you know, clients and random strangers. I mean, that's the strangest thing is like, and I've had so the amount of friends that I made through this community is unbelievable. And I remember I talked with Chad Koplinger once and we talked about, you know, we see each other for, let's say we see someone like for an hour, once a year you hang out, you know, at a convention, you meet up and you see each other, you sit down and talk for an hour. After 24 years, you spent one day with that person, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I never thought about that, but our, to me, that proves that philosophy, that time is, is malleable yeah. because even though we don't spend, like you and I have only spent so much time together in person, but I still consider you a good friend because what happens in that amount of time is all that matters. Like, especially these days with our fucking phones and time. Um, are, are you familiar with the author, uh, Michael End? He's German, Michael Ende. He wrote The NeverEnding Story. Oh, okay. So he wrote another book called Momo, and I highly recommend it. I'm just going to put that out there for everybody, and it's going to be if you want to know, you're just going to have to read the book. Uh, <laughs> but it's basically what we're dealing with in our society right now, even though I think it was written in like 1984 or something like that. Um, the eating of time that's happening right now is absolutely mind-blowing how we're wasting our time. I do it. Absolutely. I 100% do it. As Dude, much I, as I think about it so often. We've lost the ability oh to we've we've lost boredom and boredom has been so oh, essential for everything that's oh, ever been essential. created completely that's a you good know. way to put we lost boredom you're totally right we don't even get to because think on that, the toilet you know we're no. always on our phones taking you know yeah, it's <laughs> always it's awful because that is so essential for the creative drive yeah completely essential i mean it's like and for thinking and like we don't have that just dead time to think no we're always existing on this upper level of things yeah. moving so fast that we never i mean without yeah. effort we need to make effort nowadays to have time to be able to settle and let our minds yeah. go into the sub let our subconscious actually do something yeah. yeah which i was thinking you know one of the most amazing things about you getting the money and getting support was the tattoo community and how interconnected we all are because of yeah. this simple act and the choice to be marked and to uh, to mark other people and how mm -hmm. that binds us together. Mm -hmm. But the other part of that was social media. And yeah. I think social media is a, a double-edged sword. It's, yeah, completely. But fuck, that wouldn't have been possible without mm. this thing that can steal so yeah. much of our time but without it, you wouldn't have been able yeah. to reach as many people. As many people wouldn't have known your story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. it's it's a complete double-edged sword. I think about that a lot, actually, because I get tremendous, especially in my situation now, physical situation of, um, you know, not being able to work, not being in a shop, 
where you get this social exchange and interaction. I'm someone who I actually do really well alone, um, which not everyone does. So it's, you know, a lot of people have been tested now in the pandemic to see how well they do being stuck at home. I'm a relentless creative that like whatever, like I will always do something. Like if I'm not drawing, I'm, I always find a, a level of creativity that's appropriate to where I am. Like right now it's like mending clothes because that's the level, like I can't draw right now. I'm, my brain's too tired and that's hard. That's like, I mean, when you've been drawing your entire life, not having the mental energy to draw is like, I, I, I through the fall, I struggled with really bad depression. I've never been depressed before in my life. And really, really, it's kind of like as this hype of moving here and having cancer is like, there was that task, the next thing, like now I have to get this done. I have to get this, like I get to Sweden, I get my house here and it just hit me like a ton of bricks and suddenly you're just like fuck like this this is it and like not being able to like I realized what a tool my creativity has always been you know and not having that has been absolutely brutal so for the first time in my life I can fully 100 percent like not just imagine what it's been like for close friends dealing with depression, but like hundred percent, you know, like suicidal thoughts, like very regular suicidal thoughts, because there's like, is this really how I'm going to die? Like just shrivel up and like, and it's like being a control freak too. It's like, I'd rather be in control of that. And like, I'm hurting the people around me so much that, let's just get it over with now so that they don't have to be prolonged, you know, the suffering and like suddenly understand that mindset, even for someone who's not sick, you, nailed you know, it. that is yeah. the exact dialogue of the hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. That it's, it's not because you don't care about the people close to you. It's because you care about the people close to you. Um, yeah, it's brutal, but, um, Fuck, now I lost my train of thought as usual. But uh man, you're doing so good. You're you're you seem so <laughs> so sharp. I do talk a lot. I'm good at that still. <laughs> well, that's Anyone perfect for a podcast. <laughs> What's that? Perfect for a podcast. It's sweet. But I was gonna say anybody who's ever worked with me, they're like, Yeah, she knows how to talk. But <laughs> <laughs> well, but, okay. No. I, I think I would also, you were, back in the day, you were fucking, what, like a power lifter. You got into bodybuilding and you completely transformed yourself from just (laughs) like a regular woman to, I I have lifted weights throughout, well, never as dedicated as you. I Uh, never got anywhere close to what you did. It was, it was an interesting time it was I guess the way I am is I absolutely thrive on a challenge I thrive on being a little uncomfortable on I thrive on being around people that I know are better than me so that I can 
So instead of being intimidated, I want to rise to their level. You know, it's, I, it's my absolute happy place. Is that feeling a little bit like I'm in deep water and swimming with sharks right now is my absolute best place to be. And that can be anything. I love learning things. Like, and that's one thing that I, I, this time I have, I guess that's what we were talking about is, you know, time and realizing that I do well on my own. And like, so now I have all this time on my hands instead because I'm not working. What do I do with this time when I'm not able to, to, for example, draw, I learn things, you know, be it, you know, Japanese mending techniques of clothing or whatever the fuck it is. But so bodybuilding, I had, as a lot of us tattooers, our bodies start to hurt after a while. And I was just not doing great. So when I was still in San Francisco, I started going to a gym, trying to learn by reading books and one of the trainers was like hey, you probably should not be trying to use this flat rack <laughs> can, can I he's like can I like you know don't want to be a dick here but can I and not like mansplaining but straight up like fearing for my life here so um and then I was like I'm gonna learn how to fucking train like I'm gonna learn how to do this right you know like I love it I love facing something and being like I don't know anything about this I want to learn everything about this um and it's not about competing with other people at all that's completely uninteresting to me it's a hundred percent competing with myself and it's the same way in tattooing I mean of course we compare we all do you know but they also say comparison is the of joy, right? Um, is if we can compete with ourselves, that's all that matters. And also that awareness of where our joy is, you know, then we can be on the right track. So I decided that I wanted to get in better shape and being the kind of person I am, I can't do anything in moderation. So I started, you know, weightlifting pretty heavily. And then around that time, I met Jane, my husband, who at the time was competing in powerlifting, which the difference for people, bodybuilding and powerlifting, powerlifting is all about how much you lift versus bodybuilding is all about how you end up looking. So that's mm. the main difference between, between the two. Um, so he, we both started getting more and more into bodybuilding because I tried powerlifting, being built the way I am. I'm 5'9", built like a fucking giraffe, always been super skinny, really hard for me to, like, I'm not particularly strong for my height because I'm so lean. You know, like if you look at powerlifters, the, the women in my weight class are probably all like 5'2", you know, five feet tall and built like brick walls. So powerlifting like I was not getting particularly stronger with that type of training it didn't suit my physique so we started trying bodybuilding approach instead and it just clicked and I started putting on muscle for the first time almost ever and I had to eat like a freak I had to <laughs> eat so much food it was 
and not fun. It was like rice and chicken and that would be it. And just like seven meals a day. It was awful. Like two and a half cups of white rice, seven times a day. And like, it was- Wait, you ate two and a half cups, seven times a day, or you ate two and a half cups throughout the day for seven? No, no, seven times. Jesus Christ. You had, that's what you have. I mean, the, that's the, I mean, it could be other things, but that would be the- And no veggies? The, the amount of, was that? No veggies? Like vegetables? Well, I wasn't, I was so full that there was no room. Like veggies ended up being extras because it was all carbs. It was all carb, like, you know, you break it down into carbs, fat, and protein. And so that would be my carbs, white rice. And then the, you know, protein would be chicken breast. And then, you know, not much fat in there because you're trying to keep the fat low. So that's basically what I'd be eating. But they would, I ended up having to do a lot of shakes. So is this how I can get strong? <laughs> do not use my <laughs> unless you have my metabolism don't uh, fuck <laughs> I want the secret because <laughs> Jamie was the opposite he was basically on a zero carb diet because it's all about your physique your genetic how you're genetically predisposed so I'm uh, very much an ectomorph I guess would be the, the scrawny one so I can eat <laughs> unbelievable amounts of food and still not put on weight which sounds great until you're trying to put on muscle and it takes forever mm -hmm. to put on muscle but I could stay lean so yeah I competed in a bodybuilding competition and it was the strangest thing I've ever done like easily the strangest thing I've done I mean the full spray tan and Oh, you know, I bleached my hair. I got my French tips done. It was like, I say it was like the most expensive, elaborate Halloween costume I've ever <laughs> done. You know, and I had long hair at the time. So it's like, get my, my hair done. And like, it was, but it was so, because that's how I am. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to fucking do it. You think and there's something I, about tattooing uh, and obsessiveness that go oh, 100%, together? Yeah. Absolutely. And also something that you, can never fully master. That's something I thrive on too, that I can always improve. I can always learn more. I can always get better, which is most things. I mean, very few things do you actually plateau, you know? Now I always said with tattooing, the day you think you're hot, hot shit and that you, you know everything you need to do, know is the day you should quit tattooing, you know? that day is the day you no longer have business in that industry, you know, like in that field is it's like that humility is everything. That fear, that little bit of discomfort is so important. I say that little bit of self-hatred mm -hmm. <laughs> that keeps us on our toes that like, you know, you're not fucking nothing. You need that little <laughs> voice where I can go, oh yeah, we'll fucking watch this, <laughs> you know, and, and keep pushing. And it's like, and I mean, it's the, the comparisons with bodybuilding and tattooing is completely the same. Cause it's like in the same way that with tattooing, you know, you're like, you look to get to a certain goal and you want to learn certain things and you want to achieve certain things. By the time you get there, it's a moving target. Now you, that's not enough. Now you want to be here if you're doing it right. 
yeah. you know, it should be moving targets. I've actually, I've written, I've, I started writing an essay about that, or it, it might be part of the book that I'm writing, but it was about how uh, tattooing puts us through a painful experience and we come out the other side changed. Yeah. And I think it, it definitely does not just apply to tattooing. It, it happens with lifting sure. weights. It happens with everything that struggle yeah. accompanies progress. And that Absolutely. those moments uh, of putting ourselves through some kind of pain or some kind of struggle to achieve something actually bring us into our bodies and help us be present and help us to oh, feel the experience of being alive in a way that we don't do when we're just uh, taking taking an easy path. Yeah. 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 If things are too easy, if we're just trying, you know, there's definitely a, a, a purpose to that too, you know, to give ourselves moments of reprieve. So we're not- oh, we got the- the four seasons you got summer spring yeah, to fall and, and all of those are 100%. essential and i'm someone who i have to really check myself so that i'm not always trying you know like my husband and i talk about that a lot because he's someone who's like he feels like he should be on 24 7 you know and i think as tattooers a lot of us are like that we feel like that is a reasonable thing to ask of ourselves but it's absolutely impossible. You know, like how many tattooers actually take vacations, you know, like actually experience, like they've been to a million places, but it's, they've seen the inside of a lot of tattoo shops and a lot of rest, late night restaurants, a lot of Denny's. It's <laughs> still gonna be open at 4 a.m. when you're done at that guest spot, you know, and, and convention halls, but don't spend, a lot of time exploring life outside of that. And there's times, there's been times in my life when that's all I wanted, you know? And that's, again, about intention, you know? If that's actually what makes me happy right then, fucking go for it. But eventually we burn out, it's impossible, Yeah. you know? Absolutely. I think that voice for so many of us, uh, I think it's for any creative person that internal voice of constantly feeling like you should be doing something or else yeah. you are fucking off or you're being lazy. Oh, yeah. Like I've, I'm reading through, uh, I just finished reading Grapes of Wrath and Steinbeck mm. yeah. kept a journal while he was writing it. And it's so huh. crazy to read it because his internal dialogue was, I can't believe I call myself a writer. I can't write. I, yeah. a young man wrote to me and asked me how to be a writer and I don't know what I should tell him. I don't even know how to yeah. do it. And yeah. constantly telling himself that he's lazy. And this is Steinbeck, and, you know. I know. So that, yeah. I think that voice is so inherent in being yeah. a creative person. Absolutely. That I guess it's a comforting thing to know that that exists for all people. And yeah. I, you know, for Jamie, that constant need to be on and going. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's, the curse of of wanting to to live up to the yeah. gifts that we've been given i guess oh completely 100 percent. i mean even now in my in my illness i mean i talked to my therapist about all this stuff a lot and she always has to remind me to like i don't always have to be performing is the wrong word because I don't mean it in the sense of like for someone else but like I don't always have to be um 
doing something with a purpose, like mm-hmm. with a with a goal, you know, like it, whether it be like, you know, cleaning my house or making a painting or, but I always feel like there's something on that list of tasks, whether it be fun tasks or whatever, but like, I'm really learning the art of doing nothing. That is hard, man. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. And to actually, to not feel guilt around that. I mean, I never saw myself as someone carrying around guilt and I felt tremendous guilt not doing something at all. And especially having all this time. And Jamie's like, you have cancer. He's like, is that not enough? <laughs> like, is that not you doing something, battling cancer, like fighting for your life? Because, you know, because that's a very real thing. You know, it's and things, what I was talking about earlier, you know, that cancer very much doesn't just affect your body but your mind as well i mean it is i have a theory i call it um um suicide by cancer and it's something that i obviously didn't know anything about before i got sick but for example like me falling into this deep depression that i had through the fall um and I'm currently on antidepressants. I've never been on antidepressants my entire life. And I realized I had a ton of stigma around it. I had a ton of, like, just in the same way that I had such a hard time getting on oxys because I grew up around so many addicts and like so many, like pretty much every partner I've ever had has been an addict in one way or another. Um, And, you know, I've always, so it's like all these preconceived ideas I had around it. you know, I, this, this depression, um, and especially I started, you know, I had daily thoughts, not about actually killing myself, but just around the idea of suicide. And I was, then that was starting to scare me because I was like, this is so far from who I usually am. Like, I do not even recognize myself. I mean, we all think about death, but this is, you know, starting to think about like, how would I do it? And, you know, how would it affect my family? And like, you know, all these things. And like, again, I talked to my therapist about it and um, and she's incredible and non, non-judgmental, but I, I started to realize that this cancer is such a beast that my body is fighting the cancer. If it can't get at the body, it tries to kill you through your mind, you know? It's like, and I realized that's how most people die from cancer. Like what I was saying earlier is if I decided that I was done, I, it wouldn't take, I know that if I didn't choose to live every day, I mean, there are days when like getting out of bed seems impossible, that I'm so tired and so fatigued that like, you know, it's like the most menial tasks become so exhausting that if I decided that I couldn't do it anymore, I wouldn't, it would be over. I'd be dead. And I realized that's how it works, mm-hmm. that that's how it will kill you. I mean, and there's zero judgment in that. I a hundred percent understand anybody. And there will come a day for me when I will, you know, when it's my time and none of us know when that is just like you say, it could turn out to be, it could be two months from now, but it could be, 
20 years from now. And I worry less about that these days and more. I think about it more, I worry about it less um, than I ever have before. But I never realized that that is the main way that cancer is gonna kill you is by making you quit. Yeah. So, so it's the power of the mind, you know, and then that way, you know, and then some cancer is more aggressive than others, of course. So, but yeah. That's so crazy. Not to, I mean, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to make a correlation between the two, but it is so, yeah. so that that whole idea is so similar to depression. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, well, the mind body connection is a hundred percent tangible yeah. real thing we, yeah i mean and and with your with the except with with your case it's uh for everybody we're painting our own picture like we're, yeah. we're making the reality that we live in by the decisions yeah. we make by the way that we view the world and our place in it sure. etc and that's all mental but in your in your case it's a direct correlation between physical yeah and completely out of mind start in the other and right. but you do end up in a very similar place and i'm um, I don't know if you're familiar with John Kabat-Zinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of my absolute favorites. He, uh, so it's J-O-N-K-A-B-O-T and then Z-I-N-N. He, um, he's still alive, but he, uh, he's the man who started studying the physical effects of regular meditation on the body. Like, would it so pretty much any because these days you know we have plenty of studies showing that meditation isn't just woo woo it's not just this thing that they're like oh you sit down you feel a bit better and blah blah, blah. it's like no it, it you're literally altering your physical being i mean that's not like you know that's not a joke that's not a theory it's not something to believe in it's i mean now it's been been studied and measured um this is all based in my, my old grandma dog is barking <laughs> my 17 year old um so he's a fascinating guy and i i listen to a lot of his lectures but i primarily because i'm so tired it's a lot of times hard for me to muster up the energy to to even be able to meditate on my own these days. So I use a lot of his guided meditation. You can find it on YouTube, like tons of them. You can find, start with a five minute one. You know, if you've never meditated before, it's very clear. You know, you can, John Kabat-Zinn meditation instruction for beginners. You'll, you know, it's amazing. And um, he also does this, what he calls, you know, my brain is shorting out, but I think he calls it a his body check but it's, it's a lay, lie down meditation. Oh, do you kind of go up through your body? You feel your feet relax and you're. Yeah. And you completely check in with every single part of your body. And mm-hmm. suddenly you become way more like, you know, like we talk about body awareness in my case, if I had listened to my body more, I could have advocated for myself better. But like, you know, when I was having severe abdominal pain and I would just shrug it away, you know, like body awareness is so incredibly important. So he talks very much. I mean, he has programs where he's worked with patients who 
are basically in palliative care that, you know, at this point, um, the medical, modern medical sciences, they can't do anything more for them. He's been work. he originally started working with patients like that with an eight week program and the results have been absolutely incredible. Um, just showing what we are able to do with it. The body and mind connection is, I mean, how could we have one without the other? Oh man, you know, yeah. It's I'm... absolutely, I mean, things like anxiety. I mean, it literally shows up as physical manifestations in our body. I mean, tattooers know stress, mm -hmm. you know, how that shows up completely in physical manifestations, depression everything it's like the two are completely connected like how could they not be and our you know uh right don't we our our brains i think everything emanates uh, mm -hmm. everything grows out when we're being formed from our our stomach like i think i believe so what yeah. i understand that's the beginning of our yeah. formation and they are so incredibly connected that that second yeah. mind is in our stuff that feeling in the gut like the gut is, feeling literally is gut so feeling. important yeah. and we override it yeah, and I was thinking, I say, oh, sorry. You go. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, um, as a female, you know, we have to be, when we're out, especially if we're out at night, you know, like how often women dismiss their gut feeling. And I say like, that's so incredibly important, you know, or your gut feeling about a person, you know, like how often did that actually turn out to be true? Mm -hmm. But we learn to push away our, like we are animals and we have these instincts that we have completely ignored because we think we're higher evolved, whatever that would mean. Is if that means losing these abilities, I would say that's not a higher, that's not a higher level that I necessarily would want to achieve, rather return to, you know. And meditation yeah. is one of the ways to do that. Absolutely, 100%. I thought earlier, you know, um, you were talking about meditation and I think meditation is a way that we can get in touch with that part of us that isn't mm. in, conscious in this realm. It's, it's our connection to whatever the mm -hmm. fuck we come from, wherever yeah. we come from, it's our connection to the stardust. And yeah. as you're facing this experience of, of really spending time with, with death and with, uh, the cycle of life coming to an end even though you're not able to to meditate so much now your experience with it has let you exist in that place where we are 100%. not necessarily our conscious mind but we are part of this gigantic whole yeah that, how beneficial is that that's really yeah great that you have that yeah it's incredible and i mean it also makes you it's very humbling because it also makes you realize but this is something I actually love. Like no matter how much we learn, we just realize how much we have left to learn. So it's like, instead of seeing that as a, like a goddamn it feeling, it's like a, wow, I get to keep doing this. And that can be like when I'm struggling is like giving myself those reminders. And there's no way of talking yourself out of, for example, depression. Like you were saying earlier, when people are just like, oh, dude, you just need to go. Like, if you just walk in nature more, have you read these studies about when you yeah. just want to punch someone in the face? <laughs> in the internet cancer world, we call those muggles. I don't know, you know, from Harry Potter. It's mm -hmm. like people that, this is so nerdy, but people who are not 
like have magical skills for muggles. We call them cancer muggles. It's like the people that don't know shit about what you're going through, but they definitely have a lot of opinions about what you should be doing. And, you know, and that applies to everything, you know, like we talk about depression. That's why I say like, there's, I feel more closeness and, and understanding of most illnesses, but particularly like you start to realize, you know, there's the difference isn't as big as we think. You know, in me, it's manifested in cancer, but then I still struggle with the same things. You know, I still end up struggling with the same mental battle as someone, and it's just as real. You know, this idea that, for example, depression is just this like, oh, you're just thinking too much. It's like bullshit, absolute bullshit. It's not that simple. And it's, you know, I mean, just the fact that we can see genetic lines of depression being hereditary, you know, is, for example, or ADHD, or, or, you know, now these days, like, you know, even talking with my dad, he's old school, he's, he's, uh, he's 77. Yeah, come on. He's, <laughs> he's Kiku. <laughs> so cute. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, and he's like, well, everybody seems to have a diagnosis these days. And I was like, well, thankfully people can get shit addressed for what they are now, you know? And I'm not gonna get too far into that because then I have other opinions about some things, whatever. But, (laughs) (laughs) But just more that like these things are actually being taken serious as separate serious things, not just one big clump of hysteria or weak-mindedness but as serious as physical illness because it is something that manifests itself in us in the mind but then it it also manifests itself physically and like what I was talking about like people who commit suicide it's it's the same as what I go through when I'm in that place yeah you know so it's like illness is illness, but they need to be treated for what they are. Right. I, I grew up with my mom uh, has had, uh, she's lost so many of her family members to Alzheimer's. Mm. Yeah. So she's always been scared to death of it. And I grew up as a kid, her saying, if I ever start to get it, I just want you to know that I will make the decision to leave on yeah. my own terms. I will yeah. that I uh so I grew up with that kind of mindset in mind. Yeah. And I've had some family that have lost people to suicide and uh yeah. and I've seen the toll that that's taken on people. Yeah. And that suicide um was unknown. The person just left and did it and yeah. said and didn't nobody even knew that he was suffering yeah. and to wow. see the toll that that took on the family yeah was just heart-wrenching. Yeah, but I, you know, in reading a lot of Stoicism and old philosophers, uh, yeah, the idea that we can make a decision to yeah decide when our time is up, I think yeah. is also a powerful thing. And if if that decision is made, can be made consciously, yeah, and uh, and purposefully and shared with the family, uh, yeah, I think that, absolutely. That's a. I think that that can be a beautiful thing. Um. 
if it ever you know. absolutely yeah. i don't know i 100 agree again intention right you know and and um thoughtfulness like why like why do we do things like to really i mean it's all a journey about getting to know ourselves in a completely non-self-serving way it's you know this awareness that can ultimately help us become to the absolute most use of the people around us yeah. you know because if we don't know who we are how are they supposed to know if we are not like we can't um you know i grew up in a household with a lot of like high tension and a lot of um like my mom had a, a real temper and a lot of anxiety and uh and dealt with with some degree of depression and and uh i'm i've definitely like dealt a lot with recovering from codependency you know because i always felt like it was my job to make sure that everyone around me was <laughs> was okay well. yeah you know and it's like in that you lose yourself like one of the most when i first started seeing the therapist that i'm seeing I was talking about like a simple thing. Like when I go to Sweden, I always feel so torn because I have Jamie with me and he wants to do one thing. And then, but my mom wants us to do something else. And I just don't know what to do. And my therapist goes, well, what did you want to do? And I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'd never stopped to think about that because I'm the strong one. I'm always fine. I'm, I don't need to like, you know, don't worry about me. I'll take care of you guys. And then it's like, suddenly, I don't even know what I want anymore. I don't even know who I am anymore because I spent my entire life like being the strong one who makes sure that everyone else is okay. And it was the biggest eye opener I've ever had in my entire life. Like I didn't even know about codependency until it was introduced because I thought it was like, I looked at codependency as that's for people that are addicted to their partner and can't you know, and can't do anything without them. And that doesn't apply to me at all mm -hmm. in that regard. It's like, I'm the opposite. I really enjoy my alone time. Like, and then my therapist was like, well, of course, as a codependent, the only time you don't have distress is when you're alone, because then you don't have to take other people's vibes into consideration. That's the only time you can be really relaxed. And I was like, I never thought of it. So I definitely recharge on my own. Yeah. I say I'm an extrovert introvert. I had a therapist that uh, changed my fucking life. I, I yeah. grew up in the same situation. Lots yeah. of, uh, I grew up w wearing a mask. I, I was always smiling. Yeah. yeah. No, I was super sad. I, if I was scared, sad, hurt. Yeah. Uh, I always just put a smile on because then. I, that's how I just learned to, to nullify yeah. the situation. Yeah. And I went into therapy and he had me talk to him and I would tell him all the, you know, some really horrible stories or scary stories. Yeah. And he's like, the whole time you're talking to me, you have the biggest smile on your face. You mm. are completely disconnected from yourself. Yeah. He's like, I want you to learn to come into your body and to yeah. exist and to feel your feet on this earth. And it was the first time that I realized that I had been operating completely 
and codependence and making yeah. sure that everybody else was comfortable and never took yeah. myself into consideration. No, like it is, it's not even a thought. No, it's not it, like, I was never oh, conscious I'm of sacrificing it. myself for everybody else. It's not that. It's, it's not even on your radar. It's yeah. pure instinct. And he pure was like, I instinct. want you to, uh, I want you to ask yourself if you're present, if you're here right now, if you're present mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. if you're okay. And I started mm -hmm. asking myself those questions and he said, yeah. And I also, if, uh, if it comes down to you being uncomfortable or somebody yeah. else being uncomfortable, I want you to choose you. I want you to yeah. make sure that you're comfortable because then if you're present, you can yeah. actually show up for people. And then yeah. it was a real, like it was a moment where my whole life yeah. started to change and it was a huge process Completely. to be able to actually do it was because i always knew something was up i was like because that's why i was like hey, hey maybe i'm an alcoholic now i know what's wrong with me like and now mm -hmm. i know why i have this pattern but it didn't click i was like that wasn't it and then it was like all these for me that doesn't mean there's plenty of alcoholic codependents out there but yeah. for myself that was not the issue um i mean i was sober for 10 years also because I was I had a sober partner and I didn't care I'd only ever drank as a partier so I didn't see but now I don't drink because of the meds I'm on yeah. uh also I, I I'm sick all the time you know so it's just varying degrees of feeling sick um but anyway I, my brain veers around a lot <laughs> uh codependency was holy shit, what a life changer. I didn't think that it could be this switch almost, that suddenly it's this aha moment, the biggest aha moment I've ever had. And I was like, holy shit, that, there it is, yeah. there it is. And, you know, it's unbelievably hard to, you know, it's like retraining our patterns completely. You know, it's cognitive behavioral therapy to some degree, you know, it's like changing you're, you know, so you don't go to this middle point before going from point A to B. And then learning for me, the big one that I've always asked myself is, is it mine? Mm. Is it mine or is it someone else's? Because I always <coughs> take everyone else's also. And I don't even think about like, is this actually, am I doing this for me? Or like, is this my issue to deal with? Yeah. Or is it theirs? And I say, not my circus, not my monkeys. I love that one. That's a Polish proverb. I, oh, it's so is good. it really? I didn't yeah. know it was Polish. <laughs> nice. uh, but it's it's a great one. You know, yeah. like I'm learning to not. And whole, suddenly, I realized, like my therapist was like, you know, the book Atlas Shrugged, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> like not a huge fan of the author, but you know. And she's like, well, don't worry about the book, but the image of Atlas Shrugged. You know, you're carrying the whole world on your shoulders and then you shrug it and say, I'm not carrying this anymore. And I was like, oh my God, I'm allowed to do that. Yeah. Like I'm actually allowed to not carry everything. And it's anymore. so interesting how you, well, okay, two, two things. So I think a lot yeah. of people that grow up with any kind of trauma as a kid yeah. end up experiencing what we're talking about. Yeah. And if you haven't been, uh, it's it's great <laughs> but for yeah, people that have experienced it, where you learn to react to things this way yeah uh 
then you have to do work to be okay. You have to do work to be present. Oh, and you have to learn to choose yourself. And it seems like it's a selfish thing to choose yourself, but by choosing oh yourself, God. you're able to show up for people better because you can be fully present yeah. as opposed to reacting. So you're operating out of choice rather than out of habit. Completely. I mean, that was a huge one for me, especially, I mean, I still struggle with this one, but like, again, I was someone who didn't think I carried guilt around and suddenly I felt this overwhelming feeling of, of guilt for, because I'm like, oh, I'm making it about me. And my therapist said, like, you know, when you make, when you, when you work this process and you like, do you feel guilty? And I said, yeah. And she goes, good you're going to have to feel a lot guiltier before you have gotten through this work because it's, you know, that feeling of guilt is we, we misconstrue and, you know, um, narcissism and selfishness with self-care and self-preservation, you know, like choosing yourself. It's, it's that corny old comparison, but the, get the oxygen mask in the airplane like put it on yourself before you put it on your kid you know it's like if you don't take care of yourself first if you don't figure out your needs and your boundaries because that's a huge one you know I, I realized I had a real hard time with boundaries because they weren't respected in my childhood and so that was just what was familiar to me and then learning to set boundaries and stick by them. Because in my case, it was like, if I set boundaries, then I would get a tantrum. So then I would give up on my boundaries. And now I'm like, nope, this is a perfectly reasonable, you know, this is what I'm comfortable with and this is okay. And then if someone else isn't okay with that, too bad. Yeah. Totally. To be able to say too bad, too <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God, that was so hard. It, was, it still is still, I mean, I'm still working on it to like learn, but that's another crazy thing now dealing with my illness is if I hadn't done this codependency work for the past, what could it be? Probably like four years or so. Um, I would, you know, I wouldn't be able to do half the things I'm able to do right now in regards to dealing with my illness, you know, cause all that awareness, you know, like breaking old patterns and choosing healthy, healthy patterns over old, you know, like reevaluating our behaviors. Like, is this useful to me or can this be let go of? Like, right. have you read the four agreements? Yeah. Yeah. So this idea that we have these things that we, you know, for those who haven't, you know, these truths that we, that were established as truth to us in our childhood or you know at various points in our life that what makes that truth only because we accept it as truth but maybe they are not um helpful to us at this point in our life you know maybe they were never healthy but maybe or helpful but maybe they were at one point and they are no longer so now we're allowed to give ourselves new truths because i realized that all these untruths that I was carrying around. And I was like, oh my that's God. not actually the way it is. Like, why the fuck have I been saying that yeah. this is the way it is? Like, just because someone said so, 
just because that was generally the accepted thing. Like, that's not doing me any good. And why am I carrying this shit around? Man, it, like, it, it's fucking insane. So that, you know, <laughs> we, we operate in this way that we learn to do as kids. So if we have, if we yeah. have some good parents, I, I mean, you know, loving parents are imperfect. So, yeah. um, but if we have these people to teach us the foundations of how to live a conscious life, a present life yeah. and how to be secure in ourselves and yeah. relate to the world, then it's great. But if we're not, then we develop these patterns and these, and our neural pathways dig out and we just follow in the same circles. Yeah of thought and we're not even conscious of it. But the minute that yeah. you get this awareness and you can pull out of it and look down and be like, whoa, Holy this shit. isn't true. This doesn't yeah. have to be true. Like, like I always thought true. everything was fucked. Everything, I, yeah. I had such a problem when good things happened. I thought there's yeah. no way this is gonna last. There's no yeah. way, everything is gonna yeah. fall apart. Everything is yeah. gonna leave or, you know. Yeah, And so then I, you end up self, self-destructing totally because it's gonna it's gonna go away anyway yeah so you may as well do it on your terms yes you know that you're in control of (laughs) yeah because at least then you know because it's at least familiar well what's so fucked up is you end up it's so easy to do that subconsciously you're not oh completely oh it's not even a thought it just happens yeah man do you remember the four agreements no, this, God, I, I should reread it. It's be impeccable with for anyone who hasn't read it. It's the wording can be a little corny and a little off-putting, but it's the consensus of it is super quick read, really great. Yeah, super but, short. Anyway, go ahead. The four agreements. I always forget one. It's one. Uh, yeah. Be impeccable with your word. Don't yeah. take anything personally. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I forget now. I feel like such a because I'm like who read the four agreements? But it's great. It's I'm very. Like, it's a beautiful yeah book. but it is it's it's like as cliche as it is there's a reason that that book has been read so many times because it actually breaks things down in a way that's you know like for example if we look at buddhism most buddhism is if you read the original dharma it's for a monastery setting like how many people can sit and meditate for 18 hours a day you know like it's impossible so we have to break things down in a way that works so that we can apply it to this modern western way of living and four agreements not buddhism but very much similar train of thought you know um and similar ideas so it's like finding these things that actually can be applied to our lives just yeah i got got a little old old grandma who's mad at me for not paying attention to her dog sounds (laughs) dog sounds sauce on the floor Um, yeah it's do you have any do you have any uh books that you would recommend to people? Yeah, uh four agreements for sure. Um now it's like I got chemo brain too. I'm always a scatterbrain and now I got chemo on top of that, so I can forever use that as an excuse why I can't remember anything. <laughs> but um um John Cabazin for sure. I mean, he's such a I shouldn't even say inspiration because it's more, he's, he's a very humble dude and it's, it's very much a, a practice and a practical, it's, it's a great entry point for people who are allergic to the whole, like, you know, woo-woo. mindfulness culture, woo-woo, like, and he, not that he doesn't, because, you know, this comes from a, I mean, he was, 
he was the son of, I believe, a physicist and a concerto violinist. So he um, came from both the artist half and the science half. And he's like, how can I combine these two? So he studied at MIT and everyone, you know, was working on their, whatever thesis thing they were doing, their advisors were all trying to get, you know, Nobel physics prize. And he was like, he, I guess he was doing karate and he was like, I really like this practice we would do at the beginning of, this was in the seventies, I think late sixties, early seventies. He's like, I like this practice we do at the beginning. And it turned out that it was yoga and then meditation. He got into Zen meditation. Um, and then he started his, so he, his big MIT project was this studying the physical effects of meditation on the mind and body. And all his advisors were like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Like, you're not, you're not getting a Nobel Prize for this. And he didn't, sadly. But so his books are really great for people who doubt this. It's very straightforward and very self, I mean, I shouldn't even say self-explanatory, but um, little dogs. But just um, where it may not seem as woo-woo and bullshit to someone anymore. Yeah. That it's like, um, so yeah, he's a huge one. Um, I more recently got into Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, he has, now I might have to cheat and see if I have it. Actually, <laughs> it's a stack of books right in front of me. Um, becoming super Supernatural. He's, it's all about body mind connection and uh his stuff is really um exciting it's it, i highly highly recommend um his lectures because again it's like not everybody has the patience to read so and i fully get that um i'm a book nerd but i get so these days fortunately we can listen to a lot of stuff like mm -hmm. people the ones who you know, are kind enough to listen to me rant on forever. Um, uh, he, both him and, and um, Kabat-Zinn have great, um, on you know, YouTube lectures that you can listen to as well. Uh, then there's also, for those who are more interested in like specific cancer stuff, there's um, a book called Radical Remission that I can't, <laughs> like, no, it's not in the stack. <laughs> Wait, is it over here? Oh yeah, uh, Kelly A. Turner. Um, but it's called Radical Remission, and it's basically you know in the cancer verse. What's being studied is always you know when we look at um, statistics, you know it's the average point of all these points. But with that, like very few cases are studied where the, the outliers, it's not interesting because they're outliers. So what she did is she started studying the data of the outliers of people who have been told you're dying, you know, and turning things around. This does not mean, you know, she's very clear about saying like, this doesn't mean that this is not a how to cure cancer book because there is no such thing. There's no one diet is going to cure right. cancer. There's no, you know, and I try a lot. I'm, I try everything because I'm all about like 
fuck it, you know? I say that same approach I've approached or I've applied to tattooing and bodybuilding, I'm applying to cancer, yeah. 100%. I am. It's, uh, when I talk to Andrew, he goes, so really you're just, right now you're just trying to be the absolute best at living. And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be so fucking good at living. Um, but um, hmm. so this this book is really fascinating because she breaks down the average most common points and, and similarities between people who, who were. So if you follow these points, you know, you may potentially give yourself better odds. I don't know. But it, at least it will give you a good look into what this could mean. And uh, it's a really easy read and a really awesome book. So Radical Remission, I cool. highly recommend. Yeah, I mean, I could go on, but I'm going to say the core, core buddies. So. I know we've talked for two hours. Holy shit. I know. And I feel like yeah. we could easily talk more. Maybe we'll, yeah. we're probably tired. So I think maybe, but maybe we could talk <laughs> again in the future. I'd love that. Yeah, I'd love like, to. Uh, yeah, there's so much more to bark at me. I'd love to but, hear about like how it, how it's been to be in a relationship during this and yeah, how it's, uh, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a whole yeah. thing on its own. <laughs> we could so, easily keep talking forever. About yeah. We should stuff, do a part so. two. I would be more than happy to. That'd be and awesome. I can't thank you enough for being so motherfucking brave and uh, <laughs> sharing your experience with us. And um, for people that don't know who you are and maybe would like to help yeah. out and give you some support and just see what you're up to, uh, let people know where they can find you. Yeah, I mean, I have my primary tattoo account on Instagram where a lot of information is on there, which is Captain Hana, K-A-P-T-E-N-H-A-N-N-A. But I decided to keep a separate account from, from my tattoo account because that's my work. So I have a separate Instagram account, uh, Little Tuesday Surf Club. And uh, if you get the reference, I don't get the, get reference. the reference. What is it? It's Big Big Wednesday. Oh it's, shit, uh, Gary Busey, the classic surf movie. Yeah, I am. Uh, I love surfing. I am horrifically bad, and I'm not just being humble. Like I don't know how to surf, but so it doesn't probably, even matter. No, and that's. I mean, we could get into that. We do. Let's not start talking about surfing because then we're going to get into a whole nother like, because this all ties in. Uh, but, um, oh, that's another. My brain is totally shorting out. So I'll just.